For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your co-host, Andrew Mensel, and joining me as ever is Paul, the summer game. Dennett, Paul, how are you on this fine day? Yeah, g'day, man. It's pretty good. I just went out for a a bike ride in the um, nice Sydney sun in the late autumn sunshine. So there's a feeling of a bit of optimism, cautious optimism in Australia. I feel very sorry for uh, friends overseas. I know we have some loyal listeners to the show from places like England and the United States, and they're going through a very tough period. So thoughts are with them. But at the moment, Australia is, as I've said, feeling cautiously positive about the future. Well, I mean, how were you going for a bike ride today? I got a message from you basically on the weekend saying you were now in a wheelchair with some Achilles injury and you're (laughs) bike riding. That's a remarkable recovery. I should clarify two things. One, (laughs) I I wasn't riding the bike. Um, My daughter was. And two, in an injury that I cannot understand, I was lying in bed and just moved and all of a sudden felt the sharpest pain in my Achilles and my ankle and I couldn't walk for hours and I thought I've somehow strained my Achilles tendon while asleep and I thought that is a new record for <laughs> lacking in athleticism but on the flip side I must have a healing factor like Wolverine because as the hours went by I began to it sounds again. like it's like a, a slightly tight muscle and you've massively overreacted. Sounds <laughs> like well, a, an idea for the most boring movie ever. <laughs> well, listeners, um, on today's episode of Cricket Unfiltered, now that Paul's recovered for the show, uh, we've got the headlines. Um, there's, there's actually been some rather worrying news coming out of Victoria this week. And then uh, we're, of course, continuing our review of Amazon's The Test. So it's episode five now. It's a couple of one-day series for India. It's actually a really good episode, so we'll can't wait to get there. But let's get into the headlines brought to you by Piccolo Podcast. Paul, you're going to lead this one off? Yeah, one of the ones that I have found interesting is that uh, David Barnum, who had a lot of success with running the Big Bash, not running the Big Bash, but uh, running Channel 10's coverage of the Big Bash, has delivered his report, which was aimed to try to see if they could jazz up the competition. One of them was the idea of splitting the innings in half. In other words, in the Big Bash, each side would bat for 10 overs uh, and then the other side would bat and then on they'd go. This idea I don't think is going to make it, and I'm happy about that. I think it's an idea that sounds nice but never works in practice. What do you reckon? Yeah, I seem to remember Ian Chappell putting this idea forward for the domestic 50-over competition a number of years ago, and I think they even 
may mm. have played a few games within this format of a 50 over cricket. I don't like it. Uh, one of the reasons is it'll just add more breaks. And I think T20 cricket's about sort of a fast paced game and change of innings. I mean, you add a couple extra of those and all of a sudden it's more stop start. I, I don't like it. And I think as well, you lose the sort of um, thing where a batsman gets in great form and then he's doing really well and he smashes a big score. If you, if you split an innings in half, a batsman could be in full swing. That's the end of the 10 overs. Then he has to come out and start again after the, the next innings. I, I think it's a bad idea. I agree. Um, one that I'm not so um, critical of is the idea of free hits for wides. Now, this would introduce something interesting to the game because at the moment bowlers are starting to bowl Yorkers wide of off stump in a bid to get out of the batsman's hitting range and they're kind of willing to accept the odd wide. That tactic would suddenly become very risky. Bowlers would hate it but I actually find it might be actually quite good for the spectators. Yeah, I, I like that idea. And I like the idea of maybe free hits coming into test and first class cricket for no balls. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly a wide leading to a free hit um, would be good for the game. But as you say, boy, the bowlers aren't going to be happy because that's going to take away, you know, a major weapon in their armory of going for that wide Yorker. Um, as you say, and the penalties, you know, for a wide's not that bad. It's a worse penalty getting hit for six. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a good idea, but the bowlers will be under the pump. I, I like that you touched upon making it um, uh, a free hit in first-class cricket. One of my favourite things to do at parties is to say that I think that, that should be the case because I'm a traditionalist <laughs> and I for, forestall them. And they say, what? what do you mean? That's the opposite of tradition. And I say, well, no, back in the days of the, the back foot no ball, you could actually tell that it was called a no ball. You had time to actually go and adjust and hit it to six. So if they brought it into test cricket, would actually effectively be a return uh, to tradition. I can imagine you're very popular at parties. (laughs) Here's an idea that I really don't like, and the idea of splitting the power play in two. This, for me, just gives an opportunity for boring commentators to speculate on something that I just don't care about, and I think that the tactical side of it is overrated. When they first brought it in in the 50 overs, almost always, whether it was the batting or bowling power plays, sides would kind of just take it at the most... um, you know, either the first opportunity for the bowling power play or the last opportunity for the batting power play. What I'd rather is if they had just made the power plays longer. I'd love a power play over 7, 8, 9 and 10 where only three were allowed outside the circle. I think in Australia that would add to the attraction of the game. Yeah, and look, you make a great point. It just didn't work when they tried it in the 50-over game. You think it's going to add a new element to it? In the end, it doesn't. Cricketers, in this instance, are pretty smart, and they sort of work out when the best time usually is to do it, and then they just do it basically the whole time. So you wouldn't get this kind of interest. Will they take the power play? So I agree with you, and I like the idea like they do in 50-over cricket of staggering the field. So in 50-over cricket, you know, in the first 10 overs, two are inside the um, circle and then four, and then for the last 10 overs, five. And I, they could do something like that in, in T20 cricket, you know, a six to 10, three or four, you know, three or four fields, and then for the last 10, maybe five. But you're trying to make it sort of a point of interest is futile. Switching tack, Australia might be asked by England to come over and um, play in a white ball series in September in a bid to try to save the English summer. Now, whether this eventually is requested or not, you know, we've got no idea. But I think if it does get requested, Australia should do everything they can, obviously keeping player safety paramount. But if they can, Australia should go over because I'm terribly worried about um, England in general, but uh, English cricket too. And if, if Australia can help them out, they should. 
Yep. And I think I said it on the last show, all those cricket grounds with hotels in them are perfect for this type of scenario to, to quarantine the teams. And if Australia can go, they should, but I, I don't think they'll be able to go this year, to be honest, Paul. Now, um, the India series is starting to look more and more likely. That is the Australia-India test series in the, in the next Australian summer. This is going to be massive if it goes ahead for the television side of things and for Cricket Australia's finances. And for those of us who just love the game, it's going to be wonderful because we're craving another Australia-India test series. There's even talk of it potentially being five test matches. And good on India. We give them a lot of criticism, but good on India. We don't criticise India so much. We criticise the Board of Control for Cricket in India. But I'm pleased that they have said that they, um, you know, all things being equal, will come out here. Well, I guess what they've shown is a willingness to play ball and and do whatever's needed to get this going ahead. So whether that's two weeks quarantine India and then two weeks quarantine here, uh, that could be one way they go. They could, they said they'll certainly do that. They're open to playing in um, the one venue. They're open to maybe a fifth test. That is one of the the points of discussion at the moment. Uh, so so the fact that India want to play ball is a big thing. And I was listening to um, Robert Craddock on Jared Waitley's show this week on SEM. And he said that India doesn't get enough credit for being willing to tour and play other countries. Australia has a terrible history in, in playing sort of lesser nations in cricket-wise, whereas India actually will go and play and tour much more willingly than Australia. And I think we're seeing here that they are willing to come here even under these circumstances. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, Australia should be more willing to tour places like Bangladesh and have them out here as the, as the future comes. Another interesting possibility is that the T20 World Cup, which I don't know about you, Menas, but I've all but written that off. There's even some talk that it could still go ahead. Um, it's on a lot earlier than the, the summer. It starts in October. So that would be fantastic if it could go ahead, um, although it will bring about a, a potential clash with the, uh, the National Rugby League and the Australian Football League because there's going to be everyone wanting to use the same grounds. Now, I know that cricket kind of contractually owns those grounds as far as the the time slots for the World Cup. But I suppose all bets are off when, um, you know, the AFL and the NRL are kind of fighting for their um, for their financial future. Yeah, and that's one of the, the big uh, issues at the moment is, you know, where will all these games be played if they go ahead? But I'm very, very um, doubtful that this T20 World Cup, I just can't see 16 nations coming here to play a tournament. Uh, so... I don't think that'll be an issue, but uh, I mean, the AFL and NRL is going to have to suck it up and find somewhere else to play if it does. Well, if it does go ahead and there are no crowds and there are no crowds in the football as well, it takes the sting out of the issue a little bit because if there are no crowds, then it doesn't really matter where, but I suppose we could see, it's not impossible that we could have a, a World Cup final at the Junction Oval or something like that. Or Sydney Oval. <laughs> Brendan McCullum has raised uh, a couple of interesting ideas, one around allowing New Zealand players to be thought of as Australians for this upcoming Big Bash, especially if Australia and New Zealand are kind of in a, a bubble where we can travel between our countries but, but nowhere else. And secondly, the idea of bringing a, a New Zealand team uh, into the Big Bash on, I think, what would be a permanent basis. What do you think of that? Well, most other nations think of Australian and Kiwis as the same, so classifying them as non-international players for the Big Bash wouldn't be a big change. Uh, I think it's a terrible idea. It's an awful idea. I don't, I don't like the idea of a Kiwi team coming into the Big Bash at all. I don't mind the Kiwi internationals coming in, and I think um, the Big Bash is going to have to be creative in the ways that it um, – 
gets this big bash going without the the sort of amount of international players that might be able to come. But to bring a, a Kiwi side in is is a terrible idea. Why are we helping Kiwi cricket? Um, I don't like it. It doesn't work in the A League. I don't like it in the NRL. I think that the eight team Australian model is working and. Uh, yeah, if it were to be a one-off, maybe just for this summer, because you know of what's going on, maybe, but definitely not. I'm dead against it. Yeah, I, I fear that I might have to agree with you. I, I want to disagree because, in principle, I would like it. Uh, so I disagree with you on that section. I, I, I do like the idea of helping out New Zealand cricket and then helping us out. I think that uh, forging closer ties is a good thing in that way, and it would be fun. But what I fear is that in three or four years' time, after the initial excitement wears off, it would possibly be a poorly performing team playing in front of small crowds out of Eden Park in Auckland. It wouldn't look very good and would kind of be sort of an albatross around the neck of the competition. So reluctantly, I think I agree with you. Yeah, it's a bad idea. Other couple of ideas that have been talked about for 20 They get worse, these ideas, as we go down the list. Well, well, yeah, I thought you'd be a a real fan of this one. The idea of reducing (laughs) Sheffield Shield from... 10 games to eight and lopping off the final, uh, making some reduction to, to the WBBL number of games as well. Um, yeah, Meneza, I think you're quite passionate about this. Oh, this is a bloody shocker. Uh, at the moment, we're looking at no international cricket. We're looking at zero teams touring and they want to cut the cricket we have uh, to save a few bucks. I mean, this is just the most, I don't know, short-sighted view. I mean, how much money can they save cutting two rounds of the shield? F all. I really don't like it. It's it's typical. As soon as there's a problem, they go straight to the Sheffield Shield. Well, they did. They always just tinker with the Sheffield Shield like it's a you know anything. They can just strip it bare. They can whatever they want. Take players out. Well, now they're looking at cutting two games. Don't like it at all. If there were severe restrictions on travel next summer then that will be something like interstate travel I'm talking about. If it would just be not viable to get teams touring. But yeah, I just can't see any reason why you do this. Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, and I, I, I agree. I don't like the idea that the Sheffield Shield, they're just gradually sort of um, knocking bits out of it. And, and as the years go by, it will start to not resemble the tournament it once was. The only thing I'll say is that if they could provide a convincing reason, and I'd need to hear it, as to why it does make sense to cut a couple of games off for this season only. I could live with it. But if they tried to use this as a way to sort of um, sneak it in on, on, a, on a more permanent basis, I'll be next to you marching on Parliament House. But I just want, like, why, why, why are they even talking about this now? Why are they talking about this? Why are they talking about cutting the WBBL? If domestic cricket is all we've got next summer, they should be looking at ways to make it better. I mean, the Sheffield Shield should be seen as, you know, it could be almost like a test match next summer. It won't be. I'm not, but it could be built up as, you know, a really important part of the domestic summer. Now they're talking about taking the final away. Yeah, just honestly, they've got rocks in their heads if they're going to do that. All right. Now, um, Another issue, and it seems to be quite a big issue, especially in Victoria, has been that Cricket Victoria has slashed 36% of its workforce. Bearing the brunt of that seems to have been community and, and grassroots cricket. You're pretty passionate about this one as well, I suspect, Menace. Yes. Yeah, so for those out there, you know, as, as Paul said, Cricket Victoria has slashed 36% of its staff. Now, I listened to the CEO, Andrew Ingleton, talk to 
talked to Jared Waitley yesterday and he didn't put a convincing case forward. Now, I can only look at this two ways. Either this is a massive failure over the last three years in that they've built up this huge uh, staff that they can't sustain and it was a mistake. So, so someone's got to go because you're costing 36% of the staff their job because an executive team messed up the expansion. So that's either that or, or they're failing now because Waitley laid it out. There's no huge revenue challenges for Cricket Victoria. There's no reason to cut the staff this dramatically now unless you're owning up to failures of the past. So I reckon... As usual, the wrong people are copying this. The people at the top need to go, actually. They need to clean out Cricket Victoria because this is a joke. Uh, 36% of the staff. Uh, Ingleton was saying on the radio yesterday, I can't wait to revitalise Victorian cricket after you cut almost half the staff. I mean, that's just a joke. So either it's a failure in the past and they have to go or it's a failure now and they have to go. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think that uh, it was very interesting hearing Gideon Haig talking about it. Not so can I just jump in? The, the whole issue about this is, is it's, it's, seems to be stripped from community cricket, the place where you need boots on the ground to keep the game going. And now they're looking at um, basically all the programs in Cricket Victoria being run by the, not by Cricket Victoria, but by the competitions and the the, the, you know, the coaches themselves. So they don't have any sort of overarching direction, which to me is like going back 20 years. Yeah, and Gideon Haig on Offsiders was very uh, evocative in his description. He said uh, something to the effect of it was like watching an alcoholic trying to cut out his own liver with a pen knife in one hand and a copy of Grey's Anatomy in the other. I, I just don't understand as well is why can't you just at the very least stand the staff down tell them to apply for the government's um, JobKeeper allowance. It's not ideal, but if that means that they can then in three or four months' time reassess the situation and say, oh, actually, we didn't need to get rid of you, on we go, or, oh, actually, it really is bad, that would surely be a better situation. It's like, as they said on the radio, that they're using COVID-19 as a cover to um, slash and burn. And, And as you say, what does that say about what they've done up until now? Yeah, so either you own up to your past mistakes or you own up to your mistakes now. But, I mean, the the issue is uh, 36%. That's over one in three. So uh, the guy head of Cricket Victoria has walked in and every third person says out the door. I mean, that is ridiculous. And, okay, 10% job cuts, you know, one in 10 in this climate, you could cop it. But 36%, it really is something that needs to be looked at uh, by Cricket Australia. Because unfortunately, uh, if if every state association does this, cuts all their community cricket, in 15 years, there'll be no cricketers. That's it. It'll be gone. One final point on that, and I, I can never understand this. If you're going to start cricket in Australia from scratch, you wouldn't create state associations as far as I'm concerned. There should be a national body uh, governing it. Then obviously you need local um, a local presence all in the various localities of the country, but the notion that we have the Cricket Australia giving money to the states and after that money is allocated they then choose to spend it and that we've got presumably the same job duplicated in Hobart and Adelaide and Perth and Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane, why not just get rid of them and say let's get lean and let's run things properly? You would never start it that way. Why are we beholden to something that presumably? evolved from the 1870s and 80s and 90s. Well, I mean, I think it's a, a symptom of the way we're governed. You know, we are one of the most over-governed countries in the world, national, state, local. I mean, this just, just flows on from that, I think. 
Well, we're going to take a quick break. And before we take that break, I just want to remind you, if you've got time, go and rate and review the podcast on whatever app you listen to the show on. And great news, at the end of May, Paul and I are starting our live YouTube show. We're going to be doing that once a week, Thursday nights, um, starting the end of May. So can't wait for that. So um, we'll, we'll let you know when that starts. And uh, now we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with our review of episode five of The Test. You're listening to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm Menes. I'm with Paul. And let's get stuck into episode five of Amazon's The Test. So we've just come out of the test series against India. And now we pick up in the Australia v India three-match ODI series uh, that came after that test match. And then actually this episode goes to the, the Indian ODI series in India. But let's start in Australia. Uh, you know, Langer starts off this episode by saying, okay, everybody, you know, we've worked on being liked. Now we need to basically work on winning. And and then we get a little bit of a, a short explanation by Gideon Hay on sort of what one day international cricket is and we see that fantastic Steve Waugh catch where he, he catches it behind the side screen uh, that's one of my favorite catches of all time I actually was watching this with my wife and as soon as that came on I immediately did um Tony Gregg's commentary word for word um thought you know that should impress her but I don't think it did but yeah it's a great set of highlights uh, Bevan's four off the last ball as well and then we sort of moved to Aaron Finch coming into the spotlight, and he really is the central figure in this episode, I would say. This this is almost um, episode five, the Aaron Finch story. And um, Langer talks about how Aaron Finch was almost voted in as captain. So they don't use votes to elect a captain in Australia, but they used a voting system to get an idea of who the Australian players wanted as the white ball captain and overwhelmingly Aaron Finch uh, won that. And I, and I will say um, he, he deserves all these accolades because everything I've seen is he's a great bloke. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that this, this episode highlighted that and highlighted how um, easy he is to like. And I, I thought that the, the narrative of him struggling and uh, you, you know, you rooting for him to try to get him to, to start succeeding was a powerful one, and I really enjoyed watching it. I, don't, I just quickly, um, you know, there's this sort of talk that AFL is taking over cricket. Well, I think um, AFL teams usually vote their captains in, and Justin Lang is a massive. Well, he's on the board of the West Coast Eagles, which is where he might have got this idea from. Yeah, and then they, well, the co-vice captains came out as well. Um, sort of the concept of the leadership group. Look, AFL is a very professionally run sport, and I think that. Uh, its influence on cricket is often for the good. I know that when Peter Siddle trained at North Melbourne, um, he first re- realised, wow, their, their training fitness levels are, are higher than, than cricket. The one thing I cannot abide by, though, is the, the use of the term list instead mm-hmm. of squad. Um, and that's one of my real bugbears. If any, any Melbourne journalist says that, uh, oh, you know, the Renegades have got a great list, um, that gets me ang- a lot angrier than it should. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know me, I want to kick them all out of the SCG. So that's my main issue with AFL is that it exists in Sydney. Um, So, you know, then we sort of um, see Finch talking about how he has to get his head around leading Australia in a World Cup. I mean, he's following in some the footsteps of, you know, a lot of very successful captains. I mean, that is something maybe they touched on, but they didn't sort of maybe expand on that Australia has this amazing record in World Cups that, they, you know, they're yeah. the Brazil of Cricket World Cups. And, 
you know, there's a certain level of pressure that goes along with Finch being given the captaincy. You're not expected to compete. You're expected to win the World Cup. That's why we're going. You know, we're not like England that goes there to have a good time most of the time. It's about <laughs> winning. Um, so then well, we... Australia's record at World Cups is so successful, it's actually a considerable insult to refer to them as the Brazil of, of World Cups. They are probably the Brazil plus Germany plus Italy of the World Cup. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so the, the the first match starts at the SCG. Finch is bowled early on between the gate, and that's sort of been talked about as a technical flaw in his batting. Australia beats India. I was there for that game. But the, the, the story at the time became the pressure around Finch. He'd come off a, a run of outs in the Test Series. He was now struggling in the ODI team. And there was a lot of outside noise. I don't know if you remember, but it was the overriding narrative at the time. It was interesting in the um, was the team meeting before the third one day at the MCG when Langer sat them all down and, and, and asked them uh, if anyone had any feedback to give to, to Finch and sort of Glenn Maxwell and, and Alex Carey spoke. I thought that was quite intriguing. It, it seemed as though it had been something that he had done off the cuff and I, I would have found quite that quite difficult if I was in uh, Glenn Maxwell's position. That I, I think maybe it would have been better if he, if he wanted to get... get for them to give some feedback, to give them a chance to give some consideration to it first rather than just um, say it off the cuff. Yeah, I mean, it was normal cricket speak, wasn't it? You know, oh, we know how good you are, blah, blah, blah. Um, so they go from SCG to the Adelaide Oval. Finch gets bowled again through the gate. Australia lose this time, so the series is one all. And Australia haven't won a one-day series for ages at this point, had they? I mean, it was a couple of years, I think, because when they say... At the end, we'll get to it. You know, I don't think Aaron Finch had won a series as captain yet, a one-day series. So it was, uh, it was rough time. They get to the third match and then they have that meeting. Finch is out LBW in the, the third match. India win the series 2-1. They sweep the summer, so they win the Test and ODI series. And we see Finch starting to talk about how he might miss the World Cup. Um, and he also does explain, you know, how it was hard and he hadn't experienced it before coming from a test series straight into an ODI series. And then I just think it's worth at this point pointing out that we do take for granted that that's not easy. Um, and, you know, Warner and Smith and those great players that do it well are actually very skilled at being able to move between all the formats and, and perform and, and like not get drained or under the cosh. Yeah, it's a good point because normally Finch would come in after this test series and often the one day players coming in represent a breath of fresh air that they can see the ball, hit the ball, play aggressively. But this time having gone through most of the, the, the test series, um, it was a much more difficult thing for Finch and he was up against bowlers who had dominated him in, in red ball cricket. Yeah. Now then um, we get to see Finch now on, on the couch with his wife complaining that he can't score any runs. I didn't like this scene. It just felt forced to me. Yeah, I didn't like this. I just thought it was too contrived. What did you think? It's a little bit difficult, I suppose, in the sense that when you're in the team setup and the cameras are there day in, day out, you probably get quite used to them. But suddenly having a camera in your home, um, I, I agree, you're not going um, to want to sort of give a Big Brother-style experience of, of what was occurring. Australia loses the series. It's pretty pretty low at the moment you know it's pretty low tone in the show and then australia heads to india for a two-match t20 series and a five-match odi series and we'll get into what was 
on the program, but I found it very strange that they left out the two-match T20 series against India because it was a very exciting series. Australia beat India 2-0. Maxwell did well. I thought it was worth um, at least touching on that and um, putting it in the story. But I wonder why they left it out, Paul. It's a very good point, man. I think they must have left it out because it didn't quite suit the narrative. The narrative was that Australia were at a low point and then that low point got even lower when they lost the first couple of games of the one-day series. If they had to firstly mention that Australia actually had two very good wins in the T20 series, then it would have uh, muddied the, the simplicity of the narrative. But if I was Glenn Maxwell, I'd be entitled to be very annoyed because uh, he played a, a match-winning 50 in the first game and then an absolutely extraordinary, um, explosive century in the second game. So I can see why they left it out, but your narrative has to fit reality rather than the other way around. Yeah, uh, 100% agree. I guess the only thing that might confuse, say, a casual viewer is trying to explain to them the difference between formats. So... You know, for us, we know that uh, how badly the 50-over team was doing still was the same regardless of those T20 results. But I guess maybe a sort of a casual fan wouldn't be able to differentiate between the two formats. But in the end, it was a mistake because I think it was worth telling. So uh, so let's talk about the tour. We get a real insight into what it's like being in India, uh, the idea of being in a fishbowl. I found the one story interesting that, you know, Indian fans will book hotel rooms in the same hotel as where the, the teams are and then, like, they'll get the whole friends and family over to the room and just wait there to try and, like, run into a player. Reminds me of what they did to Greg Chappell way back when, when he was having a run of outs, that the media were trying to speak to him and they couldn't get hold of him. And then uh, somehow his phone in his hotel room rang and it was a, a media type. And he said, how did you get this? And he said, the, the guy very proudly said, I actually checked into the hotel. And once I was checked in, when I rang through and said, can I be put through to Mr. Chappell's room? They had no hesitation in doing it. And he said, well done. By the time you hear this, you'll also be hearing the sound of me hanging up on you. And we get, you know, Langer saying how the only sanctuary on these tours is being in a hotel room or in the change room. And uh, it does look pretty intense. You and I have both never been to India, but it's certainly something we need to check off the list as soon as we're allowed to travel. But it's a five-match ODI series. And, and the fir- before the first o- ODI, we see Stoinis setting up what they're up against, how talented the Indian players are and how it's a hard place to be. He's very modest. So he said something like that if that even the Indian players not in the side uh, are more talented than him. And I always find it refreshing when someone says something that is different from the typical uh, cricketer speak. And so I've never really had a, a, an opinion either way on Marcus Stoinis because I've never known anything about him. But as soon as he said that, I sort of thought, oh, I really like this guy. Yeah, it's nice when cricketers drop the false bravado and give you a bit of honesty. Uh, then the first ODI finches out for a duck. India wins by six wickets and, and, and you think it's going to get sort of very heavy and intense like in some of the last e- episodes, but we start to see a different Justin Lang. He says, you know, this is going to be the year of letting go and Kawaja says Lang has mellowed out a bit and Hanscom's saying, um, re- you know, things have relaxed and, uh, you know, JL's putting the onus on the players to run training now and JL's saying they're run- training harder because he's giving them more freedom. Um, so yeah, it's almost JL changing in the team, mellowing out a bit. Yeah. And I really like that. I, I said in, in one of our earlier episodes that I was hoping to see a bit of that because I think he was too intense and 
his wife had said how how intense he was. So great to see that he, he's mellowing out a bit. And you can only um, empathise with how how tough that job is and why it's quite natural for him to have been so intense in the early days. So impressive that he's been able to mellow out. Mellow do, you, out. do you think he's implicitly admitting that he was a bit too harsh in the beginning? Or do you think because he's able to sort of go in and set the standards, he can start to take the foot off the gas? Oh, I think that he probably would agree that he was a little bit um, uh, too fired up in the early days. Not by much, but but maybe just dialing things back 10%. Um, I would imagine he'd probably agree with that. I'm not sure, but I think he would. And, you know, JL sort of goes on this whole thing, how he wants more self-reliant players. He wants them to be problem solvers at training and then out in the middle. Yeah, this always baffles me a little bit. But the, he mentioned how back in his early days that the only two non-cricketing staff that were in existence in the Australian team were Bob Simpson, the coach, and Errol Orcott, the physio. And again, I'm sure a lot of people would be nodding enthusiastically saying, yeah, there's too many hangers on these days. And I just don't get it. I think that it's a professional sport. All other professional sports have loads of attendant staff. Why shouldn't cricket? And I don't buy it as well that just because you're sort of thrust into a tour on your own, that that means that you're more able to solve problems on the field. I think that's somewhat of a tenuous link, although I accept that most people probably do agree with it. A little bit of psycho babble. And then we get a nice contrast, Justin Langer saying, camaraderie is the glue that binds you together when you're under pressure. And then next scene, Usman Khawaja says, basically, a cricket's a skill-based game. I've seen plenty of teams with great camaraderie lose. So uh, he do, he basically disagrees. And we start to see that we see the difference between JL and Usman. And I like both of them, but I really liked this line from Kawaja. Maybe my favourite line of the whole show. Just up until then, every problem, they always seem to address it from a psychological point of view. Uh, and, and it was refreshing to hear Kawaja say it's a skills-based game. And that's ultimately something that I think needs to, to not be lost. And then the second ODI between Australia and India is played and Kohli makes a century. Australia is set a pretty small total of 251 to win and they should have won, but they sort of collapsed at the end and, um, you know, botched the chase. And, and Stoinis said afterwards that although it was a bad loss, the team didn't feel that bad because they themselves could feel they were getting closer to India on the field. Yeah, and uh, I suppose he was proven right. And then the third ODI begins and we get sort of, we've still got this narrative going of Finch not scoring runs and the pressure's on him and they play audio of Ian Chappell talking on Australian radio saying that there's a good chance Australia might have to drop their captain. That was a bit annoying to me in the sense that at the same time as that audio was being played, they were showing Langer and Finch on the bus with headphones on. And the implication was that that's what they were listening to. Now, it's possible that they were both listening to that, but I think it's about 100,000 to one because, you know, Ian Chappell's talking on Melbourne radio or whatever else. They're listening to music or something. So I don't like little kind of devious is too strong a word, but just little naughty things like that annoy me. JL might have been listening to a kind of meditation podcast or something. Uh, so JL sort of takes ownership of uh, Finchie's form slump here and Finchie goes into JL's room and they have a chat and JL says he never lets anyone in his room. So this is a, a big thing. And, and the two of them kind of sort of bond and, and what does JL say? He's going to pick up the tools and try and get Finch back and going. Yeah, it's on the back of Finch saying that he had a tough meeting that, um, with, with Langer and Hones. And then they cut to JL. I've actually written the quote out that, that he said something like, 
it was actually at that time where I thought, you know what? No, no, come on, Justin. You've got to take some ownership of this because we can't afford not to have Finchie as the captain. I rolled the sleeves back up and we spent time together and I got back on the tools and I started coaching Finchie again. I loved every minute of it. Now, I have a couple of thoughts on that. One, it must have been no coincidence that when Justin Langer took over in Western Australia, Adam Voges suddenly had the best summer of, of the summer of his career and went on to have a very short but very successful test career. I, I suspect that Langer is an unusually good batting coach. So my point is, maybe he should have been doing this earlier. And what does this say about Graham Hick or the, the you know the, the the assistant coaches that are there? It just seemed a little bit strange that you know Langer should have been on the tools all, all along or sacking the assistant coaches. Yeah, I mean. I have no idea about Graham Hicks' skill as a batting coach, but I know if I needed help with my batting, I'd much prefer Langer helping me out than Graham Hick. Uh, and then we see a nice little scene where we see Matt Hayden, Justin Langer, and Aaron Finch chatting at the back of the nets. And, and this brings to light something that I like about Langer, his um, keenness to bring in the former greats to help the current team. And we'll get to it in the, the World Cup and the Ashes later on where um, – Ponting and Steve Wall play big roles. But I think Langer's openness to bringing the past greats into the inner sanctum and, and trying to get them to help the current players is, is nice to see. Definitely. And uh, I think it's good that in the, um, in the ashes that, that followed, in the World Cup that followed, that they weren't just there kind of coincidentally. Hayden was there commentating and so he took the advantage of, took the opportunity to get him to assist that they then actually got Ponting and War in on a, on a full-time basis. And I think that's, that's the right model. And then we get the Love Cafe, one of the lighter moments of this uh, episode. As a coffee drinker and a coffee lover, I did enjoy this. Adam Zampa uh, making his sort of own filter coffee on the road. He takes a grinder, a kettle, beans, and he brews his own coffee. And uh, Stoin comes in for their morning coffee together. And uh, why is it called the Love Cafe? Because Adam Zampa says the secret ingredient to the coffee is love. I know you're not as fussy about your coffee as I am, Paul, but as someone that is truly, truly in love with coffee, I can see myself doing what Zampa does, traveling the world with a grinder and coffee beans. In fact, I think next time I go away, I might do it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I thought that was a nice little scene. And then we... On that, I think it was a great scene. I loved it as well. Look, if you're going to bring up coffee... I love coffee and I drink it for the caffeine and if the taste is nice, then that's a bonus. But I might have to challenge you to one day on the on the podcast, we do a blind tasting and, and just see whether you can really taste the difference or it's a bit of a, a bit of psychobabble. That'll be actually good for our YouTube show. It'll work much better with the visual element. And then the, the third ODI kicks off. The Boomer has a big appeal to Finch early. It's given not out. You, know, you get the drama there and, you know, it's tough going for Finchie, but, you know, Uzi says to him, just hang in there, mate. And then Finchie gets going and he smashes 93 off 99. And guess what? Finch said at the end of it, it was a mindset change, not a, a technical change. India is set 314 runs to win and Zampa bowls, Coley and the series is alive. The, the interesting thing about that was, and again, it's not major, but I didn't like what they did with um, the Zampa story because if you were just watching the documentary, you got the impression that Coley was smashing the Australians, which he was, and then after he'd scored his century, kind of in desperation, they threw the ball to, to Zampa almost as though it was the last throw of the dice. Yet in reality, Zampa had been bowling 
he'd already taken two wickets. And when he got Coley out, that was in, that was in his eighth over. And so, again, I just think, why um, meddle with the narrative when it was still a powerful story, no matter which way you told it? Why not just stick a little bit more closely to the truth? And, again, I ask, what other things have they been less than completely truthful with that we haven't picked up on? Oh, I just left out two games before the series that Australia won. Uh, so you know what they win- should do? What, what I would appreciate if they're going to do that. Can they, because uh, I've only been watching it as we're going. I hope in episode six or whatever else, it turns out that we actually won the World Cup. That'd be awesome. <laughs> and win the fifth test of the Ashes, so it's 3-1. Yeah. Me. So Australia wins. The series is alive. We see the Aussie team walking through a packed hotel foyer. So the fourth ODI, Australia is set 359 runs to win. And I think that this game is in the top, 10 Australian ODI victories of all time outside World Cups. I mean, this was a phenomenal win. Ashton Turner played the innings of his life so far. I'm not encouraging gambling, but it is for me as well, because I think I had a little bit of money on Australia at 12 to 1 when Turner came out to bat, because I'd seen Turner win games for the Scorchers when it looked um, useless. And it was a, a tremendously exciting innings. And it was exciting because the commentators, the Indian commentators, really didn't know much about him and reminded me of 2001 when Gilchrist got 149 um, in the, I think it was the second test of the Ashes at a partnership of 50 with McGrath where I don't think McGrath scored a run. And the, the commentators there knew of Gilchrist, but I didn't think they knew just how amazing he could be. This felt the same. And I felt proud of Turner as I was showing off um, this new talent um, to, to the Indian commentators. Reminded me of Inzamar Malhak in the 92 World Cup against New Zealand in the semi-final. Mm. And he, he was a nobody, smashed 70 off 30 balls and New Zealand were put out. I, I liked Turner's comments around this innings. The first one was, he says, basically when he walked out to bed, he had no idea what was going on. <laughs> it was spinning. You know, he, you know, he literally had no idea what was going on. And then... He just admits that after a little while, all he was focusing on was watch the ball, hit it as far as I can. Uh, I like that because it's, it's, I mean, that's what happened. He just started smashing everything for six. And as we've had um, a, a couple of times in this documentary where players who are having a real upward arc and then subsequently haven't gone as well, it's a little bit sad. And I really hope that in the coming years, we see a lot more of Ashton, Ashton Turner at the international level and that the current lull he's in is just a very one. Yeah, fantastic uh, match. As I said, I, I put this in the top 10 uh, ODI wins I've seen. I, when I look at, you know, there's obviously the, the Bevan last ball four at the SCG, but I remember a game in South Africa where the series was on the line and Australia was four for not many and Steve Waugh and Michael Bevan put on a massive partnership to win that series in the cauldron of um, South Africa. I remember in the 91 tour of the West Indies where we won the ODI series there on the back of your favourite player, Swampy Marsh, scoring two centuries. Uh, you know, you know, bilateral ODI series are often denigrated, but, but this one in particular leading into a World Cup against India was vital. And the fact that Turner... And the whole team, because Hanscom made a brilliant century. I'm not going to, wasn't all uh, Turner. There was some great contributions. The fact that Australia was able to do that was actually very important to the broader context of the team. That game in 97 in South Africa is part of the reason that I'm not financially better off because I, um, rather than turning up to university that day, I taped the game because it was so late. It was like a day-nighter. And I watched it throughout the morning instead of going to lectures and it probably contributed to my poor marks and poor trajectory since. But it was a 
it was worth it the whole way. That was Bevan and, and Steve War at their absolute finest. And yeah, I think this game, I, I'd qualify it with outside of World Cups. Definitely not a great in our top 10, but add, add the World Cups in, then, you know, those yeah, games are so much yeah, more. The World Cups are different. Um, but I think I love you, Paul, because. Uh, <laughs> No, like I just talked about one South African game played in the middle of the night. If I'd said that to probably 98, 99.99% of people that had just nodded and no idea what I'm talking about. You, were not, you remember the year, you remember what you were doing, you remember missing school that day. <laughs> Certainly perfect. All right. And then so it's two all, we get to the fifth ODI played in Delhi and uh, Usman Khawaja makes a, an even century. Which Did that get mentioned in the documentary? I don't think it was mentioned at all. Uh, that's, that's disappointing. I, mean, I know that, that they are constrained for space, but I think it would have been nice to mention it. Especially when he features so often in the, the yeah. match. Um, Australia set India 273 to win. India were rock and rolled for 237. We see the, the Indian team just look distraught. Um, and then we see Cummins, you know, talking at the end. And I like this because Cummins is a leader in the team, but we don't often see him speak to the team. And I, mm. you know, I liked what he said, you know, that you know, this is the first series win in India for 10 years for an Australian side. It's the first ever time an Australian side has come back from 2-0 down in the series. And as usual, it, it ends on happy times. I also like the quote from Harsha Bogle sort of saying that um, Australian teams aren't down for long and kind of implying it was sort of part of our culture that we um, that we get we, we get through these tough times. And as someone somewhat overweight, probably, uh, I think I was eating ice cream while I was watching it, I thought, yeah, we do. Maybe not me, but as a nation, that's what we do. <laughs> the Aussie battler. So that's our review of episode five of the test. Remember... If you want to find us on social media, we're on Twitter and Instagram at AusCricketPod. That's A-U-S Cricket Pod. This is the time. If you want to ask me and Paul your cricket questions, there's not much else going on. So email us, AusCricketPod, A-U-S CricketPod at gmail.com. Next week, there will be a listener mail section. So email us in. Coming up after our final break, it's Can't Let It Go. And we're back for our final segment of the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. It's the Can't Let It Go segment where you, Paul and I give you our one bit of cricket news or uh, points that we just can't let go through to the keeper of this week. And I'm going to start this one off, Paul. Shane Warne is featuring all week on Fox Cricket. It's Warney Week. Uh, every night, Mark Howard's interviewing him. And look, I'm just going to say it. Warney He's not only a great spin bowler, but he's incredible at spinning his own life story to suit his narrative. And that's not to say I don't enjoy hearing him speak, uh, but yeah, he's a great spin bowler on and off the field. But after that interview, they played Shane Warne's top 50 wickets in Australia. And I was shouting at almost every wicket, like... It is amazing how good he was. Like you, you seeing fifty of his wickets in back to back, you just realise what a freak he was. My 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 son was like, "Why do you keep screaming?" Um, <laughs> but when Warren had his flipper, so before the first shoulder operation, he was unplayable. That flipper was like it just embarrassed some absolutely incredible batsman. I mean, when he, he lost the flipper after the shoulder operation, he couldn't bowl it as much and he bowled more a toppy and a slider. Didn't quite have the bite of the flipper, but that, that worn early years flipper, I was just shouting at every wicket. It was incredible. It's interesting because I've heard Warren interviewed on um, 
uh, from on Sky Sports, and they asked asked him when he considered he was at his peak, and he said from sort of ninety two up until when he got injured in ninety six was his peak. But then he added again that sort of that two thousand and five six period uh, when he sort of had once again totally got over all his injuries was another peak as well. And I, I kind of agree with you about the flipper, but I do think that once he kind of perfected that slider, it wasn't necessarily as dramatic. He didn't make batsmen look as stupid, but that prod, prod forward and the one would go straight on and he'd get them at LBW. It was pretty effective. It would even be more effective today with, um, with DRS. Oh, I laughed at Atherton getting out, Cullinan getting out. Uh, it, it was embarrassing. And some of these batsmen weren't even getting the bat down and the ball was fizzing on and cannoning into their stumps. So I warn early years, that's my can't let it go. What's yours this week, Paul? What bit of cricket news is just keeping you going? Well, I've actually got two. Um, one is related to Warney himself, that listening to it. Uh, Warney just week. Warney week. Just going through YouTube, I happened to see that he'd been interviewed by Crick Info and that one of the questions he was going to be asked by a listener was, if forced, who would you have dinner with, John Buchanan or Steve Waugh? And I like this because I'm always fascinated by Warney's feuds. And I, one of my great hopes in life is that one day Warney and Ian Chappell and Ian Botham and Steve Waugh can, you know, um, make, maybe make hug a boy and band. Hug and kiss and form a boy band or something. Well, Ian um, Chappell, Warney and Ian Chappell hate a lot of the same people. Yeah, um, it's... <laughs> It's true. So I'll do it. One day I might do a diagram or a PhD on it. But um, <laughs> so given that earlier in the um, in the year when Warren was asked about to name the Australian side that was the best he'd ever played with, put, put that together, and he actually included Steve Waugh, which he tends not to do, I was thinking maybe there'd be a bit more, he'd be more conciliatory in tone when given this question. But sadly, I was disappointed. He, he sort of he reacted when asked the question as though it was the most impossibly awful choice. And he sort of said, oh, John Buchanan. Oh, but do I have to do either of them? And I said, oh, you know, my, my hope for their rapprochement has not yet um, occurred. The other one I, I can't let go. Also on YouTube, uh, I happened to see a little 10-minute piece that David Lloyd did um, about his love of Accrington, the town that he has lived his entire life in, in Lancashire, in England. And it was just a really pleasant piece that featured, show, you know, show where he used to play soccer as a boy, where he used to play cricket as a boy in the same spot on the road. And then it was a day of him going to support Accrington Stanley, which is um, uh, a lower league football club that are currently in the third tier of English football, but in years gone by, they've even been lower. And Bumble was just standing in the stands um, behind the goals, but sort of unobtrusively uh, having a, a quiet, relaxing day with all of his sort of mates down there. Uh, getting into the game like nobody, nobody's business, totally unaffected without any kind of um, airs or graces. And I just thought, oh, I'd love to be there. I'd love to go and have a day at that ground. One pound pints when the team wins. Um, you know, it'd be a great aftermatch um, situation. I just thought it was a lovely, charming um, uh, scene. And maybe you think, geez, I hope that England can get back on its feet soon. Those sorts of things can start to resume. So it was a bit bittersweet knowing what we're currently going through and seeing something so pleasant. Yeah, I liked that, but I liked the first Can't Let It Go. You had better with the feuds, more salation. <laughs> well, listeners, that is that for this episode of Cricket Unfiltered. Uh, go back and listen to my interview with Curtis Patterson that was released earlier this week. Go and follow Paul on at the underscore summer underscore game. You can follow me at Amenas. 
and the much promised second edition. Yeah, I was going to go there, but I thought I don't want to make another, you know, false promise. So. I know. So <laughs> it's becoming embarrassing, but I actually had recorded it and then the audio stuffed up. So um, it is all but in the can. It's coming out on Monday. So, yes, go be ready. The Bradman Mini Pod continues. That's it for Cricket Unfiltered. Thanks so much for listening. All the best wherever you are in this tough time. Lots of love from Paul and I, and we'll be back soon.